I'm your host Flavia and welcome to this week's episode of the EcoScoop. Last weekend I actually got the chance to meet up with Greenpeace Belfast as they staged a demonstration outside Tesco's on Dublin Road. They were protesting Tesco's involvement with deforestation and meat production and after the demonstration I actually had the opportunity to sit down and chat to two of their volunteers. We got to chat about a lot of things. Um, We talked about the demonstration and the campaign from earlier on in that day. We also chatted about their experiences in activism and we talked about Greenpeace's organization and wider history. They actually celebrated their 50th anniversary back in September. So it's an organization that's been around for, for a really, really long time. The two volunteers I spoke to were a really, really interesting pair because they were both at very different stages of their activism journey. John is actually a veteran eco-warrior and he's got over 20 years experience in activism under his belt. Paul, on the other hand, has only been with Greenpeace Belfast since the beginning of the year, so he's very much at the beginning of his journey. So listen through to the interview to listen to John's stories, which were an absolute pleasure to listen to. And Paul, in the end, also gives some really good advice for young people out there who are interested in environmentalism and activism and maybe don't know where to start. And, and if you're interested in joining Greenpeace, Paul also gives some really good advice on how to do that. As usual, we are ending the episode with a good news roundup brought to you by Ema Smith. We're sticking to the tradition. I think we can say it's a tradition now. And we're ending that segment with some animal related good news. Now, I hope you really enjoy this episode and thank you so much for listening. So with me today, um, I've got a couple of representatives from Greenpeace Belfast, um, just fresh from a protest outside Tesco on Dublin Road. Um, I'll ask you guys to introduce yourselves to, to our listeners. John, do you want to go first? Um, I'm John Wright, a veteran with Greenpeace. And uh, we've, as uh, Flavia just said, we've just finished a big action uh, for Belfast Greenpeace Group uh, on the Dublin Road with Tesco. Opposite me is my good friend, Paul. Hello, uh, I'm Paul Dugan. Um, I'm relatively new volunteer for Greenpeace Belfast. I've uh, joined in June of this year um, and uh, just uh, on a bit of a, an outlet to, uh, to help out um, and kind of pursue some kind of environmental and ecological interests. Brilliant. So you guys obviously just alluded to that you were outside um, Tesco on Dublin Road um, for a little bit of a protest. Do you want to share a bit more about the campaign that you were promoting? Uh, yeah, uh, so basically um, at the minute we're looking to put a bit of public uh, pressure on Tesco to uh, shake up its supply chain and um, basically as the, uh, as the leader um, in, in meat sales in the UK and you know, the big supermarkets in the UK and Ireland, um, we're just looking for a meaningful uh, kind of, you know, leading by example uh, from Tesco um, and one big example of which is their um, uh, supply of meat and the, any supply chains regarding kind of meat products. Um, they've got uh, subsidiaries such as Moy Park, Pilgrim's Choice, uh, two big uh, meat uh, suppliers for Tesco for chicken and uh, pork, um, who are owned by JDS, the world's biggest uh, meat exporter uh, company uh, coming out of Brazil, uh, which has been uh, directly linked to you know severe deforestation, uh, human rights abuses, uh, you know 
uh, displacement of um, indigenous populations. Um, basically, you know, the, the Tesco campaign is really um, aiming to, to, to raise awareness for this and to put pressure on Tesco to shake this up and basically change its habits. Um, with the main uh, aspect being to, to sever links with these such companies and to try and push for a more kind of plant-based um, alternatives uh, and, and products. No, definitely. It sounds like a really worthy cause. So what does the protest actually involve? So what, what was your action today? Um, what were you actually trying to achieve and how did you go about doing that? It, it's interesting that we're at the sharp end, but we're at the, uh, long, uh, uh, we're at the end of a long chain of thought because Greenpeace are very strategic in their thinking. So they have to find a way that appeals to the public that Greenpeace can do and in the end, uh, is fits in t with the strategic plan of Greenpeace. Um, Greenpeace is very effective in targeting corporations because if a corporation uh, image is tarnished, it hits their share value and, and sticks with them for decades afterwards. Um, so they've had to find some way that reaches out to the public, photo-friendly, photo and uh, people can participate in. So, uh, to cut a long story short, they gave us wee green stickers uh, to give to the public to put on, onto uh, a big cutout of CEO Ken Murphy, isn't it? So, uh, he's the new CEO of Tesco, uh, and as the top man of a huge corporation, uh, it was interesting for the public to see this life-size figure on the Dublin Road, uh, albeit in cardboard, and then us. We decided... Um, in the, uh, uniquely to, uh, to wear suits. Uh, so Guillaume and I, uh, Paul, Kim is, and we then uh, related to the public. And we got a quite a good uh, uh, result from the public. Um, there was drunks nearby, there was uh, <laughs> lots of students and uh, others who were totally disinterested. There's a stream of cars running past, uh, including uh, the odd Ferrari and things like that. So, oh, well, buses. I, I, I went out of my way to wave to buses. Uh, anything to relate to the public, and uh, it does take a certain skill to be a Greenpeace person. I mean, the, the, the cardboard cutout definitely caught my attention, and I'm pretty sure it would have caught loads of people's attention walking past. But one of the inter interesting things that you've just said is obviously that Greenpeace is quite strategic, and in that way it's, it's sort of different from some other environmental organisations that are in the public eye at the minute. But, but this kind of campaign is quite strategic, like you said, and it's also quite targeted, because... You mentioned that this isn't the only protest of its kind that's taking place for that particular campaign across the UK. It's happening across other Tesco's, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So um, this is basically uh, in a string um, of campaigns. Uh, uh, basically, you're kind of targeting Tesco in this way. Um, Greenpeace done over an iterative series of um, of campaigns and kind of uh, actions to put a bit of uh, targets, or sorry, to put a bit of pressure on uh, whoever is the target of the campaign. So, uh, for example, um, we've been given out uh, uh, packs to um, and uh, kind of letters from indigenous communities to pass on to um, uh, managers, people you know in a in a higher position. And Tesco is able to fire on this feedback uh, onto basically you know, the kind of corporate side of Tesco. Um, you know, uh, Greenpeace itself has been outside. Uh, you know, the uh, Brazilian um, uh, government offices. Uh, you know, on on foot to help defend. These um, these communities and the people who've actually been affected by you know the products which you know Tesco are, are funding, and so you know if we're able to kind of relay that information to Tesco's over here where people wouldn't have any idea this is going on, uh, you know we're, we're 
we, we really are just trying to, to get that word out and basically through through those of these different actions we're able to, to do so you know where we can whether it's uh, directly on the ground speaking to people outside um, we've got uh, letters from, from communities we've got postcards that are put up in certain Tesco's we've got awareness uh, we've got uh, bad advertising you know kind of sub advertising which you know is kind of warping um, Tesco uh, logos um, Tesco mottos you know to kind of give it a, a bit of a twist and kind of evoke a bit of thought in people so um, many approaches and we're just trying to make it that's kind of you know this pressure for as long as possible because eventually they will crack so, so it's a really multi-layered campaign then there are quite a lot of elements to it isn't it, it isn't just about standing outside tesco's and sort of protesting yeah. outside tesco's it's also talking on behalf of the communities that are impacted absolutely yeah yeah we want to make sure that the greenpeace uh, is an environmental justice as well as a social justice company i want to make sure that people who are actually affected by the choices that these that you know mega corporations make uh, that the, the voices are heard and that uh you know if our action can actually uh, cover them as well often think about the people who are affected by the changes that we uh, or the, the choices that uh, that we make and um, I think that people would make more informed decisions um, were they to have all that information at their dispositions. No definitely and it is this sort of the approach that um, Greenpeace would take to all of their campaigns kind of making it a multi-layered campaign looking at it from different angles and and trying to sort of speak up for the communities that are uh, sort of affected by these issues whilst also targeting the companies that are part of the problem. Is that sort of the general approach to, to Greenpeace's campaigns? Yes, <clears throat> Greenpeace is a, an international as well as uh, Greenpeace UK that we specifically operate under the umbrella of uh, Greenpeace UK as a headquarters in London uh, and there are many other groups uh, in different uh, uh, countries. Um, for that reason, we, we often find ourselves with the very enthusiastic volunteers that have hailed in from other uh, exotic parts of the world, like uh, Norway and <laughs> Nor specifically here in Belfast, we've got Norway and France. And our little group uh, outside Tesco today had six people, and often we would be struggling along in that with uh, three, four, five people is a, is a good group. Um, so it is very hard to get to get activism to to work, but but uh, like a, like we were saying earlier, once the brand uh, of, a, of a company is being attacked, they can uh, quite quickly modify their behaviours. But we've been running against Tesco for quite a while now, and uh, it's, so it's likely to be a big one. Uh, and it might escalate further unless, because that's how, how it operates. We sort of ask nicely to meet them at the CEO level and behind our, uh, as activists, we wouldn't be especially aware of it. The Greenpeace headquarters would be uh, talking to people behind the, the uh, curtains of, of corporate decision making, uh, and then if they don't talk to Greenpeace, then they can put it out to the eco warriors like us to try and make a difference with the general public. And is that obviously Greenpeace has also just recently celebrated a big anniversary of 50 years? So it's a long-standing environmental organisation um, that has been in the public eye for quite some time, and has obviously been fighting the good fight for a really, really, really long time. 50 years. So we've been going on the go for 50 years. Uh, mind you, even I haven't been going 50 years on the Greenpeace. Uh, How long I'm, have you been going for? Well, I am 66 years old, uh, and I've been with Greenpeace nearly 20 years. Wow. Uh, it's you know sort of on the periphery for a while. Um, whenever I was starting with Greenpeace in Belfast, there was uh, there was just two guys, uh, uh, and they were sort of struggling to, get to to keep numbers and enthusiasm going. 
and uh, so that was that was about 15 20 years ago and it's been such fun uh, I, have, I wouldn't be doing it unless it unless it was quite good fun at the same time as putting ourselves out there in the cold and wet sometimes so definitely we've got like the two ends of Greenpeace volunteering here we've got a veteran eco warrior and we've got a fairly new eco warrior in yourself Absolutely, what made yeah. you want to join Greenpeace then um, I guess it kind of all stems kind of starting from the um, you know kind of going into the kind of pandemic here and spending a lot of time at home and um, I, the first thing that really struck out to me was uh, you know just obviously we could only have short walks you know not a lot of time to, to be spent outside so you know what, what limited time we did have I, you know, I relished the opportunity to do so and I just noticed that you know first of all our local beach and the local area was just terribly terribly um, littered mm. you know there was stuff buried in sand there was stuff shoved behind rocks thrown into uh, into grass into plants and everything and it just broke my heart saying that because it just made me realize how much you know um how much i care about learning kind of green spaces and, and you know the kind of environment that surrounds us but how little um how little some people care about it and they really wanted to if, if what i can do anything to kind of um raise awareness regarding uh protection uh of the environment um uh, you know uh, local communities, you know, you know, if we can make a long-lasting change in our society, it'd be something that I'd be really looking forward to. And obviously, Greenpeace being such a household name, you know, you're talking, as you say, 50 years, 50 years of campaigns that have, you know, rocked the, the international stage in terms of, you know, um, massive, you know, projects, coverage, you know, in, international renown. But they've yeah. really and I just thought that it's such a big picture to tackle. You know, you, where do you start? You say, I want to help out. You know, you start looking at legislation, you start looking at your local environment, you start looking at regeneration, you start looking at, you know, whatever. There's so many aspects of it. And I think having the, the guidance and uh, of Greenpeace to kind of point you in a particular direction, um, I think for me was a good appeal as well because, you know, why do you start? There's, there's so many places, so many things to try and fix. So we start doing them one at a time, you know, can really focus our efforts all together um, on, uh, on, you know, or one or two things and we can really start kind of getting things moving and, you know, making a bit of a difference. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope, isn't it? That we that's make it. a bit of a difference in what we do. Um, in 50 years, I mean, John, you've just said yourself you've been involved for, for a big part of those years. Um, what would you say are some of the most memorable campaigns or most memorable moments of Greenpeace that, that have really stuck with you over the years? Yeah, um, it is quite hard work, as I was saying, sometimes in the cold and rain, uh, doing, uh, doing stalls uh, and, and public outreach. But the memorable ones are the uh, actions, and indeed, possibly that's the things that uh, Greenpeace is most associated with. My first um, memory of Greenpeace uh, was as a child, really, and seeing um, an inflatable full of Greenpeace activists who were uh, harassing uh, a shipload of uh, poisonous. Uh, containers and uh, the containers were literally being chucked overboard and one of the containers, a uh, big drum, uh, catapulted the, the crew of the inflatable into the sea and that was such a strong vision in my mind that uh, subsequently uh, I thought I could do that. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I, be I became very keen to be doing the activist end of things. So yes, I've got a myriad stories. I, I wouldn't almost know, I almost wouldn't know how to start because from Volkswagen to Shell uh, to the uh, saving the Arctic, um, and sometimes I got arrested 
Usually I didn't. But Sometimes always, you got arrested. <laughs> now that's something we'd like to hear about. Oh, but see, it shouldn't be that way. I, I'd almost prefer to say the ones which Puerto Rico didn't get arrested and everything was uh, sweet. But the, I was describing earlier how I spent uh, overnight in a Scottish jail in Edinburgh along with fellow eco-warriors from Greenpeace. And um, I didn't even make the, the front newspaper, which I, uh, because my fellow polar bear did, because he, <laughs> he had the good sense to, to put on his uh, polar bear head just as he was being led away by the police. So, so the one that got into the newspapers was um, him dressed in his polar bear suit uh, being hauled away by a policeman and a policewoman. I, naturally, I wanted to be that person in that You wanted to be the polar bear. Instead, I spent a night in the cells and we got the customary um, uh, series of cautions and uh, my own particular uh, conviction in that one was uh, particular to Scotland. I was convicted uh, of being um, uh, maliciously... Um, oh, Shame, I can't even remember it. But I, re but I do remember it. It, it came up, on, it came up whenever my uh, work manager uh, had to trawl through the criminal, the, the criminal past of me. And there was a great, there's a great explanation from upstairs, and uh, and Jackie from the manager said, John, did you really get there, get arrested for criminal mischief? So it's particular to Scotland, cr criminal, uh, malicious mischief. Sorry. Malicious, and I thought that was particularly unfair because it was neither malicious nor was it really mischievous because we we had serious intent and and a real need to do good, and um, but anyway, the Scottish courts seemed to use that as a sort of catch-all charge that you catch people with. But that that's actually like quite an interesting topic, and it's very topical at the minute, isn't it? Um, sort of climate change activists getting arrested um, for various actions that they're taking, and I suppose. I suppose in some sense the coverage of the protesters actually being arrested and sort of the discussion that goes around whether people should be doing what they're doing or whether they shouldn't be doing what they're doing and, and all the various discussions like that that go around in the media, they almost attract from the actual, like you said, you, you were there for what you thought was a really good cause. You were there trying to raise awareness for an issue that you felt passionate about um, and actually what sticks in people's minds is maybe less why you were there but actually what happened at the end of it. I, I wonder what your thoughts on that. It's terrible whenever you have to make a difference as a member of the public and let's stand in the side from this does our vote matter. But if we want to make an, a, a difference in the civic community, um, it really only seems to make a difference if we make the news and get arrested uh, or, or, or indeed create some sort of public nuisance as the insulate Britain have been doing. But personally, I have taken part in the blocking of many roads uh, with and without uh, Greenpeace cause, uh, cause, causes in mind. Um, it, it is quite easy to block a road, but it's not easy to get in the news. So uh, go figure, how do you win in that situation? Yeah, I wonder what your, what your views are on that as well, Paul, because it, it is one of those things, isn't it? I mean, people like Insulate Britain, um, probably the most recent ones that have been on the news because of it, you know, they're there for what they think is a valid cause, but yeah. most of us end up being whether or not it's right to block a motorway yeah. rather than 
the actual code that they're campaigning for. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting one. Um, John makes a good point in terms of the publicity. You know, you can you can block you can block a road, and um, you know it, it can it can amount to nothing effectively. You know, and, and you haven't raised awareness regarding that. So I can see the side of um, you know you're you're causing a stir, you're making the news, your message is out there. Um, but I think that potentially public sensibilities of that would be kind of hard to gain following that. Um, you know, I think of certain protesters who, for example, uh, you know, glue themselves to a train or something like that. Uh, you know, bringing you know cities to to a halt. And you know, I think it's hard as an everyday person who's not aware of uh, basically what's at stake to say, right? Well, they were doing that so that they get the message out and see any way that they could see fit to do so. You know, from you know an everyday person, you would see that and just think, my goodness, this person has stopped my train. I'm going to be late for work. I could be late for a meeting and interview. Mm. So I think there's a very fine, very fine balance to be struck when it comes to that kind of stuff. Um, personally, the ones that I've done so far in terms of Greenpeace being um, a more of a, an awareness raising uh, kind of policy, um, a way of kind of getting people on your side, is the way that I prefer to operate personally. Um, I really like the idea of getting the conversation going and to get people kind of chatting about yeah. these kind of uh, issues at hand. And more often than not, I find that when people actually talk about it, and I say know about COP26, do you know about this and such issue, uh, do you know, they'll say no, I don't know about it, and a lot of them will be happy, uh, you know, to talk about it, to be educated on the, on the to topic. engage. Exactly, because it gives them a, you, you, get, you basically have a platform to, to, to talk to people about these, you know, pretty important issues that are happening, um, and, um, you know, you can kind of approach it as a kind of a friendly conversation, as opposed to, um, you know, kind of getting on people's bad sides. Um, it, it's a very fine balance, I think there's a lot of methodologies involved to it, and, you know, they in fairness, I'm pretty sure everyone knows about Nancy Britain <laughs> because they made it to the news. Um, whether or not that's a sustainable way of working or if you get people on your side is something else, but um, certainly there are quite a few ways to approach it, I think. Yeah, and I mean, it's a replace for both as well, I wonder, because it, we're here in like 2021, right? And climate change has been an issue that's been known about since the 70s. Could, could, is there an argument to be made that we are beyond the whole, you know, trying to engage people and have a constructive debate around that? Could we not say that that's what's been going on for the last few decades and that actually we are in a desperate situation where desperate actions well, needed? Let's remember where the desperate situation 50 years ago that led to the birth of Greenpeace. It was the virtual decimation of the whaling industry that was that, that really was out of control. They were We were a hair's breadth away from losing the biggest animals in our planet. And uh, at, the, at the same time, there was a massive uh, explosion, pardon my pun, uh, of uh, a proliferation of nuclear arms, and uh, specifically Greenpeace uh, volunteers went out there into the Pacific uh, to try and stop uh, a hydrogen bomb, and, and the subsequent hydrogen bombs from being tested. I mean, these were sort of big, um, in a sense, it was a big macho uh, misbehavior of, of uh, international community. They're all showing off about they've got an atomic bomb, and oh, now we've got a hydrogen bomb, and we've got a hydrogen bomb too, and ours was 57 megatons. I mean, this was an insane amount of uh, destruction and pollution that was being done uh, for international geopolitics. That was what brought Greenpeace into existence, and they've been making a difference since then. And okay, climate change is the big, huge issue, but we've walked from the precipice before, and I personally, as an optimist, I believe that we will, we will get by with uh, 
surviving, uh, but the amount of mischief uh, done uh, not by us, but by corporates and by uh, the climate criminals that call themselves politicians, and this is what we're up against. It is going to be a, a terrible struggle. We are fighting against huge forces, but there have been wins. And, I, and whenever you said about uh, what the actions have uh, been to in the past, I, I can say that there have been huge wins, and two that I took part in, which were absolutely uh, knockover successes, and uh, were both enjoyable and uh, smiles all around, is what I call it. Because not only did I enjoy it, not only did it create results, not only did the activists uh, and, and, and Greenpeace work together as a team, um, the people we were victimizing uh, on the ground, and the police even, it was a smiles around, everybody loved it. And I'll just quickly summar, uh, summarize it. It was at Sheerness. There was a shipload of diesel and other Volkswagen cars coming in. There was lines of uh, uh, Eastern European workers ready to offload them. But uh, between uh, one way or another, between um, shore-based people, between inflatable-based people, and uh, a, a big combined operations, we stopped the ship from docking. It had to go back. It missed its, uh, missed its birthing opportunity, missed the tide. So um, the, we negotiated with the police. Uh, could we all go home now, please, and not face arrest? So we, got, we uh, all got back into our, uh, we all back into the buses, and uh, everyone met, met in the pub outside Greenpeace shortly afterwards. And uh, the, even the Eastern European workers, uh, as we were being leaving the premises, they were applauding because they plopped in. They were getting paid just to stand there. And of course, we had stopped shipment coming in. They would be getting paid whenever the ship did come in some weeks or months later. Yeah, and of course, what we've done is we've taught Greenpeace, uh, uh, sorry, Greenpeace has taught Volkswagen a severe lesson, and uh, they have subsequently, instead of, they've subsequently turned around from being totally diesel orientated in their forward thinking, and we, we can now buy our uh, electric cars from Volkswagen, and they're totally into the electric, and that's going to be part of the solution. No, definitely. And I mean, one of the senses that I get from listening to you speak is that you are quite hopeful. Um, you don't feel like this is by any means a, a lost battle. And I think one of the things that young people are really experiencing at the moment is this sort of sense of dread or defeat in the face of what is a huge problem. And eco-anxiety has become an increasingly um, bigger problem amongst young people, particularly because they feel like they're the generation and they are the generation that's going to be left to pick up the pieces. How do you stay hopeful? And this is a question for both of you. Like, how, how do you stay hopeful? Well... It's funny you mentioned that actually because it, it is something that I that always kind of you know pushed me to, to, to look to solutions like Greenpeace you know and to something where I could give an outlet for, and um, that's probably what I would actually recommend. Um, it's very um, it's a very interesting issue I think, and I don't think I have all the answers to it. But my kind of view on it is that the news cycle that we that we kind of consume or that we've been not taught now kind of taught to you know to, to consume is you know you've got you're connected to Instagram, you're connected to Facebook, you're connected to you know at all times on your phone. We've got 24 news channels always you know, showing the same stories. Um, um, obviously, not to trivialise the events that are going on worldwide because there, you know, there's an awful lot uh, that is happening. Um, and I think it's very important for people to know about. But I think to be constantly fed the information, you know, and to constantly, as, as John said, you know, Greenpeace, for example, had a lot of wins, a lot of very successful campaigning um, developments in technology that are meant you know, to kind of uh, avert, for example, reliance on fossil fuels, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. It's all happening, but it's not really at the forefront. Uh, and I think 
for lack of a better word, it's it's almost kind of like the you know a lack of reporting in terms of what's actually going on behind the scenes. Um, I don't think that um, it's something um, that's being purposely left out. You know, I, I just think that the other stories make better news stories. Negative you know, news styles. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. It gets people enticed. It gets people talking about it. Um, and I think it's important not to get very bogged down in that. Um, that's the kind of conclusion that I came to. That if I was able to um, to contribute to you know an ecological outlet uh, like Greenpeace, where I could actually help raise awareness regarding that, you know, uh, run events, uh, talk to people, get the conversation going, um, and um, to just to, to basically get the word out that there is stuff happening, and you know, not all hope is lost. So small chunks, focus on what's yeah, immediately in front of exactly. you, what you can do. Like even for example, I mean the, the most recent IPCC report has you know it is um, is damning. It's very damning, yes. And, and the, the the planet is in a, you know a sorry state, and we need, we need to enact a policy soon uh, to you know to divert the worst effects of, uh, of them. But one line that really stuck me there the whole time was that the authors were saying we must not submit to the fatalism. You know nothing is set in stone. Every day something can change. Um, it's always been the story through throughout history of you know, collective action through the um, through the behaviour and action of many individuals has always led uh, to change in the long run. And you know the five of us outside of the Tesco today, you know, may have been um, a, a small event in the grand scheme of things, but you know how many other hundreds today or this week um, in, in Greenpeace have been doing the same thing. And I think when you look at it in that sense, you know, you realise that um, you know the, the appetite is there for change. Um, there are changes to be made, in, I think, in the system to bring this about. Um, there are obviously politicians you know, who don't agree with these views, but I think they're becoming increasingly in the minority. And um, that, you know, this this appetite for uh, for a green future and green policies, um, and you know, to kind of avert what we're living through right now, um, is just only going to increase. Okay. How about you, John? Uh, uh, yes, uh, I've been called a deep green in that I have a very small personal carbon footprint. I've given up uh, cars, I still have a driving license, and I've given up air travel. I, I can't remember. It's such a long time. Oh, yes, I do. I remember the last time I went to an air travel was um, helping in to coordinate the protests at the Copenhagen COP talks, or was it? Yeah, Copenhagen talks, and that was quite a long time ago. There's things being hoped for that, um, but I, I didn't go for it, uh, to the actual demonstrations in November, December. Uh, but I did help in the organising of it and made sure that it was going to be totally peaceful so that nobody could go back to the, to the demonstrators uh, and say, look what the tr how you trashed it, this. Um, because it is hard. Uh, I, I do remember that the, the Seattle uh, negotiations were somewhat marred by demonstrations, uh, which uh, the Seattle police reacted to by, with tear gas. It definitely backfired in the organisers of that particular conference because um, the tear gas uh, went into the eyes of the reporters and uh, th that meant that they, they got a very negative spin from the uh, media. From, uh, from, from then, we've sort of learned how to uh, behave as respectively as possible. Um, and at uh, climate change talks, the... Uh, the demonstrators outside are normally very well organised and relatively well behaved. So, so, is it basically all this organisation, all these events that you take part in? Is that is that what keeps you hopeful and keeps you going? Well, today's was today's fitted my sort of my personal smiles all round. 
because the manager, uh, I spoke to the, the assistant manager, and the, the actual manager came out, had a word with us at the very end, and uh, expressed uh, his uh, solidarity in a sense, and as far as he could, uh, and expressed that there's a long chain of command between himself and uh, the very top man, Ken Murphy, that, that, we, were that, that we were targeting. Um, but, I mean, we do have to focus are on what's effective, and uh, the targeting of Ken is clearly quite personal, and indeed it's something that Greenpeace can do, because the CEO of uh, Volkswagen that I spoke of earlier, um, he uh, had a very uh, tough time with, with his uh, bosses, because um, Volkswagen UK uh, is, a, is a subsidiary and operates under the uh, control of uh, Volkswagen in their headquarters in Wolfsburg and I have a quite an interesting little story about how that uh, was a bit detrimental to his career and um, what had happened we were blockading the Volkswagen headquarters in Milton Keynes and uh, whenever the police uh, c contacted the management of Volkswagen the, the only person they had was a corporate uh, manager of corporate Volkswagen. So uh, he said that he would give the phone number to the, uh, of the CEO who was on holiday in, in France. So the, the, the headquarters of Wolfsburg phoned uh, the UK head, headquarters man in holiday in France and, and the conversation went something like, um, Greenpeace are insisting on talking, on talking to you. Uh, and and the, the, the headquarters man said, no, we're, we're not talking to him. And the green headquarters uh, Volkswagen said, well, why aren't you talking to him? Uh, and they said, well, I didn't want to. So, so he was basically told, instructed by his bosses to meet with Volkswagen, or sorry, to meet with Greenpeace and find out what Greenpeace were asking. And so, yeah, we, were, we ruined that poor man's holiday and he subsequently left Volkswagen. We can't confirm that the two events were related, but that did happen. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I wonder if Ken does know how many little cardboard cutouts there are of him all across the UK. It would be an interesting thing to, to find yeah. out. Whilst we're in the topic of Hope for the Future, also obviously COP26 coming up very soon, next weekend. Um, I know that when I originally met you guys a couple of weeks ago, you were working on something for COP26 for Greenpeace. Do you, do you guys want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, obviously uh, Greenpeace has contributed to the uh, Global Days of Action uh, around the world. Um, we're looking to show solidarity with, uh, with you know, every community around us, saying, you know, like, now is, is time. This is probably the most crucial um, uh, you know, COP yet uh, regarding the changes between the last big one, which was done in Paris there in 2015, and uh, the ones that we've actually unfortunately been skipped due to COVID. So uh, big, big deal. Uh, and so in addition to these... Um, Days of Solidarity, Greenpeace themselves will be heading up to uh, to Glasgow on the day um, to uh, to make uh, to make their presence known and to say you know the pressure on um, basically what's happening uh, at the um, at the conference itself. So um, a couple of Sundays ago, uh, when we met you, Fabio, actually we were uh, making a part of the quilt, uh, which is kind of so basically like a big kind of tapestry square we were given, and um, to each basically local Greenpeace group, and um, in a prior. Um, uh, in a prior demonstration, we got uh, members of the public to basically put their opinions on, uh, make, make any kind of thoughts or words known 
they wanted to kind of uh, transmit to the world leaders who'll be present uh, in Glasgow in the upcoming weeks. And uh, this basically, this tapestry uh, is looking to basically um, convey the opinions, the thoughts, you know, the wants, the demands um, of the public um, from every corner of the UK. And uh, this will be presented and sewn together to a massive big uh, tapestry, I think roughly in the shape of the UK, okay. I think they're trying to go for. Um, and uh, basically to show that, look, you know, the, the word is out there and there is there's demand for change. Um, and, um, you know, Greenpeace always being the one for, uh, you know, evocative public displays, you know, kind of, you know, the cover cutter we had today, for example. So, um, yeah, I think a quilt shaped like the UK with messages from each of the regions of yeah. the UK is going to definitely fit that brief. I think so, yeah. And given that it's such a personalised thing as well, you know, it, it's hard. It's easy to maybe, you know, look at, for example, a, you know, a, a big cutout that someone's made or a big, you know, logo or something and you'd be like, oh, you know, they just spun that up, whatever. But, you know, they have handwritten messages uh, across the UK, you know, from concerned people. Um, I think is is quite striking, and um, it's very Greenpeace, if you ask me. So I think that I think they're doing the right thing, and I think that uh, it's going to really, you know, it's going to convey that want and need from the, from the general public. No, I'm I'm, I'm going to be keeping my eye out to see if I can catch coverage of it on the news because I won't actually be there, but I do want to see where that quote so, ends yeah. up, and I hope it does end up on the news so I can actually see what it looks like. Um, more generally, though, what, what are your expectations for COP26? Like, I know. John, you were saying this isn't was it your first COP. You were at was it COP six? You said you were at personally. Yes, I was at COP six, and we travelled on our coach, a whole uh, coach load of eco warriors. So we didn't uh, we didn't travel by air to that one. And whenever uh, we landed there, we, there was a great big uh, organised uh, symbolic dike being built. We we were, we were given hundreds and thousands of uh, sandbags and then we created a symbolic uh, water barrier between the conference center and the, and, uh, the outside world. Um, and the uh, local supportive politician Jan Prodi came out and he spoke to us uh, and, so, and he was from the Netherlands as well so he was very supportive of us and uh, there were lots of good intentions that was COP6, that was 20, over 20, 21 years ago, and we're not a whole lot further in my sense. That was uh, it's very disappointing. Uh, the progress has been, pardon another ghastly pun, the progress has been glacial, <laughs> and it is very sad that our politicians have been so susceptible to corporate lobbying. And uh, th that's why, even though COP26 is going on, even though Boris has made lots of promises, he has a certain, a certain Anne-Marie Trevelyan in his camp, and I'm not convinced of her environmental credentials, but give, credentials given that she has in the past been in favour of roads and against wind turbines. So uh, I am quite sceptical about our, our politicians, but I am uh, in favour of uh, continuing to press, uh, using the, the, the force of the majority of the the 99% that some people talk of that really want to see a, a world safe to pass on to our children. And even though we have a long pro, uh, uh, laborious process to, to, uh, to, to follow up, it is worth doing, it has to be done. And we, we, do, we have, as I said, recovered from the brink before in history. And uh, though this is a, cataclysmic, a cataclysmic uh, climate 
catastrophe that we are approaching, I think we can uh, survive and with mitigation and, and various climate measures. But we do need to, to hold our politicians and corporations to account, and that's why Greenpeace uh, has a vital role. Definitely, and I think it's really interesting, especially given recent coverage that's actually come out of corporations actually evidenced as being as trying to apply pressure on politicians and scientists to to sort of qualify their findings or, or their requirements ahead of COP26. And I think when you think of that news coverage and obviously Greenpeace's attempt at actually targeting corporations directly, it all makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because you kind of follow where the money is. I I think that you're spot on there, and, and that, uh, when you look at a lot of uh, Kind of what's going on, um, you, you do realise the pressure that the um, you know that, that the corporations are able to put on uh, the, the governments because you know it, the government doesn't do everything by itself. You know there's always the consultation process. There's a lot of kind of contracts given out, and you know obviously there's a lot of uh, pressure on them to give out the contracts to certain people, whether that's uh, you know money eventually in the long run or kind of deals or whatever. And uh, a lot of them sadly bend to that pressure because of you know the advantages being you know provided to them. Um, I think a good example of Greenpeace countering that uh, would be, I think there was quite a, um, a big case, I believe it was for Shell or BP in the Netherlands, which were actually held accountable for their, um, uh, well, for their actions uh, against, the, um, uh, against the environment, and it was actually uh, a, a defence that was used by, uh, by Greenpeace or by, I think, the, the numerous groups who were campaigning for, for that as well, um, that actually was used in the past, which was these decisions, these lobbying uh, actions, you know, the outcomes of this haven't been measured and haven't been actually evaluated as damaging towards the environment. And that was effectively what was the nail in the in the coffin. Mm -hmm. And you know, by law now, uh, the Netherlands operation of uh, of BP or Shell, I'm afraid I can't remember which. I think it's Shell. Um, you know, now have uh, legally binding uh, reductions that need to be made now. And there's and there's obviously a precedent as well for. Exactly. That, that um, along. It's not even the first time that Greenpeace has been able to use the, you know, the, the, the defense of, the, you know, the environmental outcome of this decision has not been correctly evaluated, um, and it's, you know, even, you know, whether that was the most recent one or not, um, and even the ones ahead of it, I think are, are really, really has set a precedent. You know, we're, we're starting to realize now that the, the courts have become a, a tool uh, in aiding for that, yeah. you know, and to actually kind of uh, mitigate those uh, types of uh, behavior and kind of misguiding of policy. There was a very substantial judgment in favour of Greenpeace uh, whenever Greenpeace volunteers scaled inside the chimney of King's North Power Station, uh, coal-fired power station, and uh, the uh, clear uh, charge was that the, uh, of you know, they could throw the book at the Greenpeace eco-workers. I mean, criminal, criminal damage because they were painting uh, a slogan on the on the chimney. Uh, there, was, there was trespass. There was uh, Many, many things could have been levied against the Greenpeace, and indeed were. But the Greenpeace deployed the charge of uh, necessity, and, and, and that was a, a defence that was established uh, as, uh, as, as tenable, and the Greenpeace uh, climbers got away with it. I actually spoke to, that, to, to one or two members from that climbing team, and it was a very tough, grimy, uh, claustrophobic experience they had to climb up there. So, I mean, those guys are heroes, and yet nobody knows their name. No. No, I mean, that's definitely something to think about. You're absolutely right. Um, the, the conditions that, you know, some of these protests and some of these activities are being, being done under. 
and a lot of the time people don't don't get the recognition that they they deserve for the effort that they're putting in i suppose generally from speaking to you guys what, what i'm getting the sense of is that yes there's a lot of work to do but generally you feel quite hopeful um i think that's that's fair to say um yeah i mean from my point of view you kind of have to be i think to be in this yeah. uh in, in this uh, kind of line of activism and you're kind of volunteering um i obviously you know that i or this kind of stuff, I did find it quite hard to deal with, you know, the kind of uh, thoughts that are going on, and I think a lot of people possibly do struggle with the, well, I'm only one person, what can I do? Mm. Uh, but as soon as you become one person, uh, you know, certainly make it, uh, a, a difference, along with other like-minded individuals, I think that's when the real difference can be made. And, um, you know, I, I do think it's, I do think it's, a, it's an awareness thing as well, uh, kind of reiterating back what I was said regarding the kind of, um, the, 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 the kind of news you would see, the kind of the um, you know the, the spin that you would get a story, for example. Um, you know, it's when you see all that, you can't help but sometimes feel a bit hopeless. But yeah. when you realise the amount of work going on behind the scenes, the amount of work our organisations do, and we're just one of thousands. You know, um, you know that there's more who would do more. You know, regarding kind of like animal rights stuff, you want to be doing kind of very specifically ocean protection. You know, active regeneration as opposed to more kind of the campaign and legislation side of stuff. Um, so for me, I would say I think. Yes, I, I'm pretty hopeful. Uh, I think it would be it would be a pretty sad existence to sit and mope for me, uh, and uh, to, you know, and just kind of let everything wash over me when I could instead be out trying to make a difference. And I can at least say that I've tried. And uh, I do think we're, we're pushing towards better things. Um, you know, but change has always been met with adversity sometimes. But it's um, it's just it, the way it it's is, a challenge. It? Yeah, it's a challenge I'm willing to, to kind of entertain and to kind of um, go forward because you know nothing good isn't worth fighting. And, and uh, I, I can vouch for the, the real invigorating quality of meeting with fellow eco-warriors whenever we get together in uh, London. Uh, normally we would, uh, pre-COVID times, we'd have, been, have the opportunity to have the gatherings together where groups all over the UK would, would meet and discuss ideas and make uh, strategic input to Greenpeace UK. Uh, and whenever we're all together, it is a very in, uh, reinforcing uh, of, of our values and, and our, our behavior because we get trained to be well-behaved to the nth degree. Uh, whenever uh, up, uh, insulate Britain, block a road, bad publicity. When the Extinction Rebellion had a little scuffle on one tube train on an, on, an unauthorized, uh, an unauthorized autonomous group action, uh, I mean, this is, this is what gives campaigners a bad reputation. And yet, 50 years Greenpeace have been annoying corporations, and our behavior has been impeccable in everywhere. The Greenpeace brand is, uh, ranks up there with, with any, any corporate brand, so we're, we're happy to take a look, tackle the McDonald's, the Nikes, the Volkswagens, uh, the Burger Kings. We can, we can take them on, and we can beat them, and we continue to do so. I suppose in many ways you're probably better equipped to do that than, say, an, an organisation like Extinction Rebellion because you are able to take that very targeted, multi-layer approach in the sense that you're a very centralised, very organised organisation that you can kind of target protests that are very targeted and very specific to what level you're trying to target. Like you said, you know, starting at the top, we're trying to reach CEOs, trying to reach the actual corporations, and if that doesn't succeed, then you kind of move down, down the layers. Yes, well, we can, t we can start low and work up, or, or, and, and, but, but I, I think I, 
one of my personal observations is that uh, Greenpeace have taken on Russia and won, and I don't think any nation or anybody <laughs> else can claim that. What happened was we were harassing uh, an oil rig up uh, in the Arctic, which Russia basically claimed as, as its own territory, and uh, special Russian commandos came down, accused Greenpeace of piracy, and arrested them and took them to Murmansk, where they were imprisoned. The entire crew was imprisoned and the, the boat uh, taken uh, into Russian waters. Uh, to cut a long story short, uh, Greenpeace kicked up about it, and uh, all the eventual, eventually all the crew were returned, and uh, including the boat. Uh, and I think you'll observe that Russia are not drilling in the Arctic, and Shell has withdrawn its assistance, that which was being offered at the time. So definitely a big win there. Then um, I could honestly sit here and listen to your stories all day, but I'm afraid we are running out of time. So before I let the two of you go, um, what would be sort of your last bits of advice for any of our listeners out there that you know are concerned, want to get involved? How do they get in touch with you guys? How how do they find out how to get involved? Well. I Probably best qualified to answer, given that my you know, relative, um, you know, you joined the the, the, the organisation. Um, we're on you know many social uh, medias um, in, in Belfast. We've got the Belfast uh, uh, Greenpeace Facebook page. Uh, Greenpeace have their own actual uh, internal tool, which is available to the public as well, called Greenwire, which we use to kind of coordinate events. Uh, you can join particular um, groups uh, that Greenpeace make up. Um, whether you're more on the, on the activism and demonstration side, you know, we have local uh, volunteer groups, whether you're more into the kind of uh, legislation side, we've got the political lobbying network, which I'm also part of. Um, and, um, you know, given that you know, we, we all have such a big online presence now, so anytime you're interested to type in or interested in um, Greenpeace, specifically if you're looking for Greenpeace, you know, uh, Greenpeace Facebook, Greenpeace Twitter, Instagram, whatever you need. Uh, and for anything else, um, I think you'd be really surprised how many um, Local, you know, either community or kind of grassroots uh, kind of movements there are uh, regarding that. So, um, really, it's just a, it's it's about just taking the plunge. I think you know, once you once you've kind of got an, a bit of an idea of where you want to kind of work in, or if you want a bit of guidance, you know, there's some indicators for all of that, and um, you know, they're pretty much for all me. All it took was this, was the saying, "Isn't there great peace in Belfast?" Oh, here's a group. I think I'll join. And the story goes, you know, been doing it for three four months now, and it's just been great ever since. So. If you want to get into it, there's uh, uh, many options available to it. It's just about finding what, whatever suits you or your kind of style of activism or spreading the, spreading the good word. Brilliant. Um, John, as a veteran activist, I think you have to share a few bits of advice for our listeners, those that, you know, desperately want to get into activism but maybe a bit scared, maybe a bit intimidated of, of getting involved. What, what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I only volunteer to get arrested because I like it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I know I'm right out there as a... Uh, I, I would fit in the... <clears throat> Uh, beardy eco warrior camp. Uh, I have no no dependents. I have no uh, work commitments that I that I need my career to depend upon. I own my own house uh, and I've got a lifestyle that is very uh, self sufficient. Not everybody, in fact, nobody else I know of has, has such comfort. So uh, the the good news is that uh, Paul is much more typical of the average uh, concerned uh, young person. Uh, he's very, uh, very lucid and, and very self-aware. But you, you, when you when you join Greenpeace, you have it all to learn. Uh, believe me, it's a, it's a huge uh, 
culture shock once you've realized just how nice people can be, how working together is so so beneficial to the environment and to communities. Uh, so we, we start, start small, start at the periphery, um, enjoy a, a bit of an outreach campaign, uh, or even just sign these petitions that, 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 your, that your email is always being swamped with. Doing things like that can make a small difference and get your, uh, just consider it dipping your toe in the, in the, in the nice balming waters of, uh, uh, of climate change. <laughs> So there we go. I think if you want to get involved, then definitely start small. And you've heard from Paul how you can get involved with Greenpeace. Listen, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast. No, not a problem. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. with me as usual and to end this week's episode, I've got Emma Smith, who's going to bring us a roundup of some good news. So we're starting off with the theme of climate denial and YouTube has apparently been taking steps to prevent climate denial on their platform. So Ema, tell us what have they actually been doing? So they recently announced, it was about November 7th, not November, sorry, October 7th or 8th, um, that they announced that they will be stopping running ads on climate change denial and um, taking away from the, de- their de- de- demonetizing. So whenever like YouTube videos are viewed, um, you get money for that. So they'll ban cover ads and the monetizing basically of any content that contradicts scientific consensus around the existence and causes of climate change. Um, so they will be taking down like misinformation pages or like taking the money off in many ways and they won't be allowing ads on that are basically climate change denial. So kind of just like general misinformation around climate change and the climate crisis, mm. um, which is brilliant. So is there any content in specific that they're, they're targeting here? Like, I suppose, actually, are there any guidelines as to what content they're sort of targeting and what they're looking to ban under these new rules? They're kind of, the rules are kind of specifically um, kind of around ones that would claim that climate change is a hoax or a scam. Um, so that ones that would like as well deny like long term long-term sorry environmental trends um so like ignoring like scientific factors such as climate change greenhouse gases um and kind of the links that humans would have with that and human contributions to climate change um because there are long-term trends um as we well know that show global climate change and that the climate is warming and the greenhouse gas emissions are very much linked to that um so it's basically any of those that are claiming that they're not linked at all or that it's kind of a hoax or scam um, so that's kind of the general things that will be kind of so basically kind of targeted basically yeah so basically any sort of content out there that seeks to deny what's already been scientifically proven for a really really long time yeah kind of basically kind of especially around climate like they um i know youtube they banned um stuff like about covid vaccines last october so misinformation about that but i suppose there's so much misinformation out there that this um particular one is very good just for the climate kind of side of things um and there'll be plenty of more things that will crop up that they'll have to like keep banning and stuff i guess like those yeah um but this one is particularly good just because it is basically around climate content um so just like views that climate change is wrong or that it's like not there um so i think they're like people are calling as well on like different social media platforms as well and like different platforms out there um about climate disinformation so youtube's one of the first ones to come out and stuff they say no we're not doing that anymore and that's not allowed so um it would be brilliant if we could see that through more of them um so i think they'll start enforcing it in about november 
um, and they'll do it through like a mixture of like algorithms that like take out the words. I think it's there's specific words around climate change and stuff or denial and scam and hoax kind of combinations, but they'll also be using like human kind of perceptions as well to like look at what is sane or what isn't sane. So it's a nice mix of stuff and different ways of doing it. Um, so yeah, that's that. Yeah, no, I think it is, it is a really good piece of information because like, I think we all know we rely on social media platforms like YouTube and Facebook and all the others so much. And it is incredible the amount of stuff out there but also the, the the spectrum that some people are on, like it blows my mind to think that YouTube has had to do that because there are people out there that are still actively saying that climate change is not a thing, that it is not real, that we have nothing to do with it. So I, I think it's completely brilliant. Um, and like you mentioned as well, YouTube had to do something similar around COVID-19 because again, that was another thing where people just went mental for misinformation and just conspiracy theories. Yeah, no, it is. It is brilliant. Um, it's nice to see. I know it kind of may impinge on like people's ideas of freedom of seats and stuff, but mm. whenever there's scientific evidence there that's clearly linked and is very much proven and is bringing into policy, it does like it's a bit questionable to like let it kind of keep going and continue down that path. And I suppose yeah. it's like freedom of speech. You're free to think whatever you want to think, and you're free to say whatever you want to say. But there's a difference of you going out there and making money from sharing a message that is absolutely not true like if you want to chat to your pubs down to your mates down the pub about how climate change is not real nobody's going to stop you from doing it but you know maybe not on a platform where you're influencing thousands of people's opinions and you're making money off the back of it which is just unethical to say the very very least definitely no I think that's kind of the key point is kind of making money off it like yeah <laughs> um, it is it would be nice for people not to make money off something like quite so serious exactly um, like definitely like arguments are healthy and like debates have to be you have to question like what's being told to you but um and I'm not to make money off something so like giant yeah and, and, and so sense. beyond debate and dispute like literally yeah <laughs> anyways I suppose the other bit of good news kind of relates to COP26 which is I think as we all know around the corner um and as part of COP26 there's a lot of information coming through about um countries releasing or announcing what their new emissions reductions targets are going to be um but most recently Saudi Arabia um did announce a new commitment what are they actually pledging to achieve then so Saudi Arabia are pledging to achieve um net zero um carbon emissions by 2060 um so it's about I guess 10 years after some of the other ones um but they've joined more than 100 countries who have committed already to reaching net zero whether it's by 2050 or 2060 or a different year altogether um so i think they said they would invest um 180 billion to reach the goals that was prince mohammed bin salman um and but they would also said um on the other hand as well that they would continue to produce oil for the next couple of decades as well so it's it's a funny way up but i guess we should take the positives from the fact that they are gonna say that they're gonna be net zero by 2060 even yeah. if there's somehow oil still coming out of there but um yeah, <laughs> it's, it's the it's wonderful funny, complexities of global politics. I mean, it's great that Saudi Arabia is committing to net zero, but basically what they're saying is we'll do that nationally, but internationally, we're still going to continue to sell all our oil and gas and we're not going to stop doing that, basically. But moving away from that sort of contradiction in, in the pledge, um, net zero is something that a lot of countries are kind of aiming towards at the minute. You already mentioned that most of them are aiming to achieve net zero by 2050 so that's about 10 years earlier than what Saudi Arabia is aiming to do but 
what does net zero actually mean for our listeners? Like, what does it actually mean to say, yes, we're in a position where we're net zero? And, and how do countries actually get there? Yeah, so net zero is one of those things that still kind of baffles my mind as well as to like which one's which, because you hear of like carbon neutral, net zero, which one is it? Um, so net zero means basically not adding to the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So it's achieved by a combination of like cutting emissions as much as possible. So by like reducing CO2 um, and fossil fuel emissions, um, just purely by so offsetting it with like measures such as planting trees or carbon capture technology. Um, so I think Saudi Arabia and their energy minister has said the country use carbon capture technology um, that extracts CO2 um, to help meet the goal. Um, and so the plan that for 2060 would um, rely on, I think, quote, the availability of the required technologies to manage and reduce emissions. Um, so that could be, could be kind of a complication kind of down the line, because um, like for something so big to happen, like for so much of that, um, that's going to have to be fairly fairly advanced piece of technology to capture that much carbon um, but they also did say that they were going to shift to renewable energy and start planting billions of trees so hopefully it's a kind of a combination of both preferably maybe with the renewable energy and billions of trees taking um, quite a big priority as well within not just like the research into technology um, so yeah um, so there is kind of a bit of a lack of clarity around it um, and there's like um as we say, like a lack of clarity, but um, hopefully net zero um, as well. Actually, yeah, there's another thing as well that it only applies to domestic emissions there. Mm. Um, so they wouldn't need to reduce oil and gas production, which I think is a kind of a major kind of yeah. complication kind of thing there. Um, so yeah. that means that as well, carbon emissions from fossil fuels burned by other nations um, won't. And when they ship them abroad, so that's not counted at all. Because when you think Saudi Arabia, I maybe tend to think oil a bit. So it's I think kind of everyone like, does. Is this just your, yeah, is it your, just your domestic kind of thing? Um, I suppose if you just look at that, I mean, that's good in itself when you have a bit of a population there, but yeah. at the same time, how are you going to balance that? It's it's quite, I think that's going to be quite an interesting one. Um, and it is 10 years after all the others, maybe that extra 10 years given this giant piece of technology that will solve it all. But um, techno-optimism might not be the best way forward <laughs> for the climate crisis, to be honest. Um, but fingers crossed yeah. I think this <laughs> is this is a prime case of always read the fine print always read mm -hmm. the fine print I mean I think though from a global perspective the fact that they are committing to net zero for a country like Saudi Arabia that you're absolutely right I think everyone associates it with oil as being you know one of the nations that may not emit that much but certainly helps produce the fossil fuels that help other countries in there. I think it's definitely a good message that they are taking steps to go net zero, even if they aren't necessarily stopping their exports. It still means that one of those nations that is so connected to fossil fuels is admitting, hey, there's a problem and we actually do need to do something. So at least it it might be a step in the right direction, especially ahead of COP26. I mean, who knows? Definitely ahead of COP26. It's quite nice to see that some people are taking it at least a bit seriously. Hopefully, mm -hmm. fingers crossed anyway. So hopefully if they do publish a plan after COP26, it will be fairly ambitious and kind of coherent in a way that all the countries will hopefully, fingers crossed, make a coherent plan and like set of achievements that they are going to achieve. Um, but yeah, in the run up to it, it's nice to have a bit of support kind of because it kind of worries it's going to fall flat. But hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully yeah. Not. And I mean, if all countries keep pledging to reduce their emissions, regardless of whether Saudi Arabia is exporting oil or not, you would think that it would have a 
positive impact. But anyways, it is a complicated issue and we'll just have to see how the next couple of weeks unfold with COP26. Um, on a slightly more positive and animal-related news, do you have anything for us this week? Yes. So this one is slightly different if you look up the pictures of we've had seals, we've had turtles. Um, this one is a slightly different looking um, sort of <laughs> animal story this week. Um, so it's on the cod of the Amazon or the terminator of the river um, in the Amazon, the giant Arapaima. Arapaima. It's, I looked up the pronunciation earlier and I cannot remember it. But anyways, it was a fish, a big giant fish that's piranha proof um, that grows in the Amazon and in the rivers and lakes that was um, going extinct um, around 1990. But now with two decades of conservation, um, the exterminator or the big massive fish is back. Um, so I think it went it was going extinct because it was being overfished for its relatively like white and boneless meat. So I think it's quite like the commodity and it was kind of nice to eat and everything else. Um, so that now is kind of coming back. Um, so despite it being a prolific hunter and um, kind of preys on reptiles, actually this is the bit that kind of gets me. Um, it's not quite as pretty in this way as how they like eat it. They crush it against their mouths, but their tongue is covered in bone. Um, so, <laughs> but but it, it, it's an animal story. We love, we love an animals <laughs> of all kinds here. We're not going to discriminate exactly. against the terminator of the river. Yeah. Uh, it, it obviously sounds like quite a scary fish that if I saw I wouldn't I wouldn't be keen to approach um but it's all it's awesome that you know it's obviously an indigenous species that was on the brink of extinction and is no longer on the brink of extinction and regardless of whether it's a not a very nice fish it obviously does something for the local biodiversity so it's great that it's being saved back from the brink but how did they actually manage to save it from extinction obviously overfishing was a big reason why but like what steps did they actually take to bring it back yeah so this was kind of an interesting one um like a lot of the others would have just been like state kind of run programs for conservation but this one um the brazilian state of the amazonas um put the responsibility of protecting the fish um and kind of getting it back um, on track into the hands of the indigenous inhabitants of the area um so it was kind of locally based was the um kind of the movement to get it back um so they began an annual population census um to determine how much was there and gave a quota to the fishermen um there was quite so they allowed like a like a certain amount of people to catch it and it went to the local communities um but this this was an interesting point was the local communities would guard the entrances to the lakes um and rivers where they were um uh, at day and night so that it would ward off poachers which i thought was quite interesting um so i think there are now three hundred thirty thousand of them um of the fish um living in a 1358 lakes and 35 managed areas and i think about 400 communities involved in managing them um so as well it's nice that the income generated from the fishing rights that um are given to the people um is pouring back into the community so it's like another level of anti-corruption that it means um, it's like right down at a local level. So it's kind of local authority that uses the fish as the resource then. And it means so it goes back into the community. So it's kind of like a green kind of circular almost. And so you have your sustainable harvest, you have your money coming back in. So it's kind of like a nice little circle going. Um, but yeah, I think it's um, it's brilliant. I think it's um, been recognized nationally and internationally. Um, so they've now the opportunity as well to kind of help other communities with like kind of similar programs, I guess, of like, local um, communities and indigenous communities protecting their own lands and protecting their own biodiversity which is really really important so um, yeah so I think 
been a giant increase in them. So I'm not quite sure what the figures are exactly, but one of the figures given was uh, after 11 years of management, there's about 4,000 in one of the lakes. So you can imagine 4,000 fish, like how many was there like 20 years back. Um, so it's brilliant. Um, it's quite nice. So even if it's not the prettiest looking fish, they're actually, they get very big. I think they can get to about 10 feet long, yeah. uh, which is very big for a fish. Um, go look them up actually it's quite interesting they're quite impressive looking beasts as well um <laughs> but yeah so kind of a local thing as well and yeah it's thought it was quite a nice story no I think you're right I think it is a really nice story I mean <laughs> terminator of the ribbon <laughs> nickname aside it is a really positive story and you're actually you made a really interesting point that it does kind of show the benefits of empowering a local community to kind of protect their own biodiversity protect their own resources and actually empower them to sort of take action but also reap the benefits from it and reinvest it into their community and kind of see see the benefits from that so I think it's it's a twofold good story it's a good story about you know what happened to the community and the fact that they were empowered to protect their own biodiversity and that they're now reaping the benefits of that and also the the terminator of the river is back to <laughs> prey on more reptiles birds and mammals yeah and it's lovely <laughs> yeah it, it's lovely story of the circle of life we'll just call it the circle, circle of, life. of life yeah i like that <laughs> okay no that that's been actually a really brilliant story and all your stories have been brilliant as usual so thank you very much for coming on and chatting to us about them um and that's all we've got time for today i hope you have enjoyed the episode and thank you to Ema and all our guests for this episode and thank you to robin who edits this episode for you guys every week 